Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page, where we dive deep into the very best books. I cannot wait to dig in this week to Mary Shelley's incredible Frankenstein. What we are going to do today is take a, uh, a very sort of deep dive into some of the most interesting aspects of the book. And what I'm hoping to do is to come away with a sense of what we need to be learning, what we really, really need to be learning from Frankenstein at this moment in time. So I'm going to start out by telling you what it is I think we need to learn from Frankenstein and then we will return at the end of the lecture to these same questions and hopefully we will have um, you know, re renewed sense of each of them. So the first idea is that we really need to be developing, and we all know this, we need to be developing more respect for the other. And when I say the other, anyone who is outside of what we consider, uh, you know, sort of societal norms. So that can take all sorts of, of shapes. And in Frankenstein, it takes a very specific shape, this hybrid creature that Victor Frankenstein creates that is eight feet tall, that is, um, you know, human in many aspects and is also entirely not human. So we need to develop respect for the other. We need to develop compassion for people who are experiencing struggles. So, or, or, or for creatures, for any kind of being that is experiencing struggles, anyone who is isolated, anyone who is alienated for any reason, we need to really develop some compassion for people who are struggling. We also need to have healthy suspicion of what most people think of as progress. So um, this book is very much a cautionary tale of sort of science gone haywire. And um, I think there are, especially uh, in the wake of the, of the COVID uh, pandemic, there are lots of reasons to celebrate science and to feel like uh, we human beings have been enormous beneficiaries of scientific research and scientific inquiry. Uh, but there is also, I think, very good reason, again, in this moment, considering AI, considering climate change, there's a lot of reason to be suspicious of, uh, you know, advancement, technological and scientific and medical advancement. But there also um, is some real need to take a look at some of our bedrock thinking, which comes from the Enlightenment. So all of that kind of new thinking in uh, the 1700s, in the 18th century, when science sort of came uh, you know, out of the darkness, out of ideas of magic and superstition, and we developed the scientific method and there were some real breakthroughs, but there were also um, you know, repercussions that came out of the enlightenment that I think we need to take a very close look at and Frankenstein will help us do that. Last of all, I'm hoping at the end of today that everyone will have developed a capacity uh, just to understand the sheer genius that can come out of a young person. Mary Shelley was 18 years old when she wrote Frankenstein, and it is an unbelievable achievement. This is a young woman who had, um, you know, essentially no real education. She was read, widely, widely read, and was raised by progressive parents. Um, her mother died only weeks after she was born, uh, but her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who was an incredible advocate for, for women's rights. But Mary Shelley has achieved something, this incredible thing, at a very young age and, and essentially against many, many odds. So I think uh, it's a good example of how we might really uh, listen. We got to listen to these youngsters. We have to listen to these young people. We have to listen to young women. Um, and, and when those voices are maybe not exactly who we expect to, to come up with genius and to come up with truths that are really very perceptive, um, we need to, to take a second thought and uh, really check out what these people have to say. In terms of agenda today, for those of you who are fans of uh, the agenda, 
the agenda and any kind of taxonomy is a very enlightenment idea. You know, this idea that things are going to be very orderly and that I'm going to give you a lot of information that you'll be able to sort of squirrel away in a very orderly fashion. That's directly, I think, from the enlightenment. I mean, probably not, probably from way, way, way back before that, but it, to me, it smacks of enlightenment. But today we're going to talk briefly about Mary Shelley's childhood, her biography, which was really um, just, just kind of a startling life she led. Uh, then we're going to talk about, I'm looking at my notes, can't seem to find this. We're going to begin uh, with Mary Shelley's life. We're going to do a quick biography about her. We will then talk about uh, the influences on Mary Shelley. So essentially what she was reading and what sort of texts influenced the eventual writing of Frankenstein. We're going to talk about the reception of the novel, which I can tell you just gigantic success right from the start. It's never been out of print, hugely, hugely successful. We will then talk about the text itself. And we're gonna be focusing on it as sort of this hybrid, highly, highly unusual text. We are going to talk about the framing device that is really central in many ways to the text itself. Um, and then we're going to talk about it as a hybrid text in terms of the version that I have here, which compares the original manuscript to the manuscript that was eventually published because that, that second sort of iteration had quite a bit of uh, involvement of Percy Shelley. I will argue, in fact, that Percy Shelley's uh, involvement in the novel was totally not necessary and not not terrible. I'm not going to say terrible, but uh, also not not doing Mary Shelley any favors. So we're going to look at it as a hybrid text in the sense that uh, you know she had a, a an editor who happened to be her her young lover at the time, uh, and then finally we're going to talk about the work as a cautionary tale. We're going to look at the subtitle of the book, and um, that's going to give us a real clue as to how Mary Shelley felt about Frankenstein. And then finally, we're going to revisit these ways in which I think uh, Frankenstein's got something to teach us. And we're going to sort of wade through all of this stuff and then revisit these ideas about respect for the other, compassion for people who are struggling, healthy suspicion or revision of, envir of environment, of uh, enlightenment thinking and of scientific and technological progress, progress in quotation marks. And then again, this capacity for uh, young voices to really be teaching us quite a bit. Okay, we're gonna dive in with a quick bio about Mary Shelley, just a truly unbelievable life. She was born in 1797. Again, her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who was an incredibly important uh, writer and sort of political thinker who was a real champion of women's rights. Sadly, tragically, awfully, she died um, just right after her daughter Mary was born. And Mary, uh, you know, fairly soon after her father, William Godwin, married a neighbor and um, went on to, uh, in fact, have more children, one of whom is Mary Shelley's stepsister, Claire, who uh, is going to be a big player soon in the biography, as soon as we get to that. Um, so William Godwin was a political philosopher, very progressive, um, very kind of utopian thinker. So this is sort of the latter half of the 18th century, 1700s, where um, he would be doing a lot of thinking, a lot of sort of enlightenment thinking about um, potentially about Rousseau. I don't actually know that much about William Godwin, but 
what little I do know about him, um, these are things that I, I really love the idea of these sort of utopian societies. It was it was built a little bit more around, you know, equality of the sexes and this idea that people are born good and a, a healthy skepticism for organized religion and for all of the difficulties that it was it was uh, that religion was, you know, uh, causing at the end of the 18th century. So um, a lot of really great progressive thought on the part of William, great in my opinion, um, on the part of William Godwin and uh, a very important legacy uh, on the part of Mary Shelley's mother. But of course that was cut short by the fact that she died soon after her daughter was born. So it is important too to note that um, that Mary Shelley's sister, who is Claire, uh, who she Claire herself was a product of an illicit affair on the part of her mother. So you have this was her stepsister. So you have this real sense of um, of, of a, a set of adults who are older, one generation uh, older than Mary Shelley and her sister Claire. Um, this this was a generation of adults who was very progressive politically uh, and in terms of their philosophical underpinnings of how they were living their life. Also um, pretty sexually free, considering that you know this stepdaughter who was raised uh, in her family was the product of an illicit affair. Illicit affair being something that I read. Um, those are not exactly the way that I would describe that, I don't think. At 16 years old, Mary Shelley falls in love with Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was a romantic poet and who actually was five years older than she was and was a, a, a close friend of her father's. So it's important to recognize that Percy, I don't know how close they were, but that's how they knew each other. But Percy would have been someone um, who Mary Shelley, the young Mary Shelley at 16 years old, would have thought of this 23-year-old. That math does not work. He's seven years older than she is. I think he was 23 when they met. I don't know. But anyway, he's slightly older than she is. Again, don't make me do math. Um, she's, she's a little younger than he is, and he is in some ways aligned with her father. So you have this sense of Mary as impressing someone and falling in love with someone who uh, really had a lot of stature and who had a lot of authority in many ways. Her father, William Godwin, for all of his progressive thinking, was not wild about the idea of her falling in love with Percy Shelley. That may have come from the fact that Percy Shelley was in fact married at the time when he fell in love with Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. He in fact was married and had a young toddler and his wife Harriet was pregnant. So, um, you know, not, not a great time for Percy to fall in love with Mary. In fact, really a very bad time. And, uh, but the two of them were madly in love, Mary and Percy. And in fact, uh, when she, in 1816, so she is a little older than that, she's maybe 18 years old, they go off to Geneva. I think at that point they had already gotten married. They only married after Harriet, who was Percy's first wife, killed herself. So, I mean, there is a story, there's an enormous amount of passion and terrible kind of romance and tragedy that is surrounding many different aspects of, of Mary Shelley's life. So when she is, around 18 years old her her uh she goes with Percy Shelley who I believe she has married at this point and her cousin Claire who is at that point in love with uh Byron the the poet Lord Byron so he is 10 years older than these young women so uh, Mary is about 18 her cousin is 17 and they go off and spend a summer in Geneva with Percy Shelley with Lord Byron and who's in his later 20s, and Lord Byron's doctor. So it is a famously 
terrible summer for weather. It's like breaks all sorts of records in terms of wetness and in terms of coldness. And they're up in these mountains in Geneva and famously decide that summer that they're going to have a competition uh, among them. And these are really, really heavyweight writers. Lord Byron is already well-established. Percy Shelley is well-established. These are real luminaries in the romantic um, writing world. So the romance writers in that moment, uh, so sort of beginning of the 19th century, were very much involved in uh, sort of passion and, I mean, it's sort of what romance sounds like, but the romantic poets, they, it, there was a lot of concern about the fleeting nature of life, a lot of concern about time, concern about uh, the human condition, concern about the sublime in the sense that man, and I mean that as man, man felt very dwarfed by nature and beauty. So there's a lot of um, emphasis on sort of the smallness of man and the fleeting of time and passion and romance and love. So these luminaries of the romantic poet movement of this time in England are in Geneva with these two young women decide to have a contest. I don't think Claire wrote anything, um, Percy did, Byron did, but I think both of those are lost because probably like if Mary Shelley comes up with Frankenstein, whatever those two dudes are coming up with is probably, it's probably not that great. Um, so she writes Frankenstein, at least the middle portion of Frankenstein, which is really sort of the, the main chunk of the book. She writes it that summer and it is published soon thereafter once she adds this framing device and once uh, it goes through a couple of different iterations. It is published in 1818. So she is at that point, I, gosh, she's born in 1798 maybe. Okay, so you're getting, you're getting the broad strokes here. You're getting the broad strokes. She's like maybe 20 years old when this book finally is, not finally, when the book is published all of a sudden. It is an immediate hit and it, uh, you know, by 1823, they're already beginning stage adaptations. She did send it first to Byron's publisher. He did not, uh, you know, did not choose to publish it, but soon thereafter someone else did. And again, it was an immediate success. Not only was that because the story was incredible, but this is a real heavyweight of a book in terms of, um, we're gonna get into this more, but it's this real compendium of ideas and it's very provocative in lots of ways. She does an incredible job, including all of these different um, texts at the time. You have ideas from Rousseau, you have actual, um, you know, sort of citation of Paradise Lost by Milton. She's really digging in to some of the huge ideas that were circulating at the time whether they be, um, you know, Milton's uh, Paradise Lost was from many centuries. I'm gonna say centuries, but I'm not sure. I was not a, I was not an English major. English is not my, it's not my forte. Um, but she, she, it's a very sort of heavyweight literary accomplishment, and it really caught the imagination of people because it also was a sort of synthesis of a lot of Enlightenment thinking, um, and, and again, a, a cautionary tale that really uh, spoke to people. So. It became an immediate hit, has never been out of print, um, has spawned just an incredible number of films in particular. There's some silent films in the 1920s and 30s that were, you know, apparently still stand up uh, to, you know, to scrutiny. I'm not a film person particularly. I love the movies, but I'm not like a film scholar. But apparently those those silent movies are, are, are a real achievement. And, you know, we have Boris Karloff. We have uh, Young Frankenstein, which was one of my favorites. I think that was Gene Wilder and um, Bernadette Peters, maybe. 
plan on, I do plan on going back and watching that soon. Uh, we have Bride of Frankenstein. We have just a whole legion of, of films that come out of it. And any number of um, uh, people uh, in terms of literature, in terms of art, have taken up this idea of this, this creature who is this kind of man-made creature uh, who sort of, um, you know, is more essentially than his creator uh, bargained for. Okay, so we are gonna move on now. Um, I'm just checking the old notes here to see, oh, one quick note, yes, on her on her biography, is that she lost three children. She had a couple of miscarriages and um, I think had two, had one, at least one stillbirth, a daughter um, who was born very late in her pregnancy, which was incredibly difficult for everyone and had a young baby, an infant son who died, and then finally did have a child, Percy Florence Shelley, who uh, lived. And Percy Shelley himself died in like a capsized boat. I mean, it's all, talk about romance and passion and tragedy. I mean, it just is really like a lot, a lot for poor young Mary. She returns to England. They had been living kind of in exile at that point because they had, you know, left and, um, you know, Harriet had committed suicide and William Godwin, who is Mary Shelley's father, um, was not happy with Mary. So they leave, um, they're in Europe, they're in Italy, which is, I believe, where Percy dies in his capsized ship. And Mary returns to England with her son, dedicates herself to writing and to raising her son. And um, at the end of her life is quite sick because she in fact has a brain tumor that will go on to kill her, um, I believe when she's maybe 50, 50-ish. Um, but, but by all accounts, just an unbelievably uh, colorful life, very, very passionate. But um, I, I really love the fact that Mary Shelley is firmly known as, as someone who uh, really did what she wanted to do, and also someone who really was able to create a piece of art that is absolutely transcendent and that has, you know, lasted through decades. It's almost exactly 200 years since that book was published, and it is still incredibly uh, present in our, um, you know, in our consciousnesses. Is that, is that how you say that? Okay, all right, I wanna talk a bit about the influences that would have colored Mary Shelley's writing. So a lot of Frankenstein, Frankenstein is known as a Gothic novel. So Gothic fiction or Gothic horror is a, is a type of writing, it became very popular at the end of the 1700s. So in the 1790s, there were lots and lots of Gothic tales, lots of Gothic stories that were being published. The first one that kind of put Gothic fiction on the map was published in 1764 by a guy named Walpole. And uh, the, the name Gothic, you know, today, like if you think about people who are goth, you know, goths, at least I'm 54, you know, back in high school, I think there's still some goths kicking around. They would have had, you know, that white makeup and all the black and they're dressed in the black with the torn up tights and whatnot. I mean, it's interesting to think, you know, maybe like the pierced earrings with the safety pins, well, that's a little bit more punk rock course. But, you know, I think there's kind of a crossover between that sort of punk aesthetic and this idea of the goth. But goth comes from the gothic architecture of the Middle Ages. And it, um, in this sense, in the sense of the literary idea about it, it takes the name from that architecture because a lot of this fiction was set in this gothic architecture. So you, you know, imagine like the dark and stormy night and you can just, you can just re see right popping up right there, like the old castle. A lot of old castles, a lot of turrets, a lot of flying buttresses, you know, a lot of stone and a lot of 
people up in little tiny windows, you know, that you might have shot arrows out of, that kind of thing. So um, the idea of Gothic literature comes from that idea of Gothic architecture. Gothic, um, so we have many examples of it that have endured. So you can think of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is the end of, uh, I guess, 1844 was when it was published. So kind of, you know, later, uh, you know, maybe 50 years after the sort of real beginnings of this Gothic literature. We have Edith Wharton, who was writing in the United States, and uh, she had a whole bunch of ghost stories that she wrote. We can think about Edgar Allan Poe, Many of you remember the fall of the House of Usher. Again, that's 19th century. You can think of the telltale heart, you know, that heart beating underneath the floorboards. That's a very good example of this kind of Gothic. Um, Hawthorne did quite a bit of this Gothic writing as well. And then into the 20th century, we have incredible practitioners of the Gothic novel like Anne Rice with all of her vampire stuff or Stephen King. I mean, incredibly important Gothic work that continues up until this day. So what do I mean by Gothic or what are the sort of aspects of Gothic writing? Um, horror is one of the ways, something that makes you recoil, something that is scary, something that produces fear or disgust or something that feels repellent. Um, a lot of it has to do with death. So um, not only like lots of times gruesome deaths or tragic deaths, but you have um, this idea of death, but also um, this idea of, of, of uh, those who have died coming back. So ideas of haunting and ideas of kind of the permeability between um, life and death. So ideas of Frankenstein, this idea of reanimating a corpse or in um, the case of, for example, like Dracula, a being who is kind of in between uh, human and inhuman or um, you know, any, any of those ghost stories like uh, Edith Wharton's or lots of Stephen King, you have these sort of hauntings by, uh, by wraiths or figments or specters, all of these sort of creatures who come back from, from the dead, essentially. So, and this idea of, of um, you know, this idea of, of reanimating corpses or this idea of questioning sort of what is alive and what is dead, a lot of that does come straight out of the Enlightenment. So a lot of um, Enlightenment thinking went into, you know, what is it that, that makes things live? What is it that is an animating force? Is it oxygen? Is it um, sunlight? Are plants, can plants feel pain? Can animals feel pain? You know, at what point is the human infant sentient? You know, there are all sorts of questions about, you know, at what separates humans from animals? You know, what is consciousness? All of these different kinds of questions in the Enlightenment are essentially, um, well, this is my own sort of thinking about it, but you know, they're sort of taken to the next level with this Gothic that starts questioning a lot of the presuppositions of the Enlightenment itself. We have a lot of supernatural stuff happening. That's very, very Stephen King. Um, you know, you have Poltergeist and you have Firestarter and these kinds of um, people who are able to tap into supernatural events. And in the Gothic, and this is um, a really big deal in Frankenstein, we have a lot of doubling. So there's a lot of twins, there's a lot of um, you know, mirroring, a lot of doubling, um, which was just sort of a motif that ran through a lot of, uh, a lot of Garthic, Garthic, Gothic literature. And then lastly, a lot of Gothic literature, and, and this is still the case, it tends to be, not, not tends to be, but it can sometimes be metaphorical in the sense of, um, it, it, you know, it can represent sexuality, it can represent 
uh, you know, certain yearnings that are universal to people, whether that's for death or for violence or for sex. It can also really speak to the ills of society. It can be a message to society. In many ways, Frankenstein itself is questioning whether or not this idea of medical progress and scientific progress in the 18th century, during the 1700s and the Enlightenment, you know, whether that was in fact good, you know, for, for mankind. And again, I say mankind there just because I mostly am talking about that moment in time and the Enlightenment, which, um, quick note on the Enlightenment, um, yes, a lot of great stuff came out of there, the scientific method, the idea that, you know, we need things to be repeatable and provable and we have to have hypotheses and we need to, um, you know, have sort of order in our thinking and that, yes, taxonomies can be helpful. The, the problem with much of that thinking, or at least some of it, is that you end up with feelings, uh, not feelings, I mean, I end up with a lot of feelings now that I'm rethinking a lot of enlightenment. I mean, if you think back, again, if you're anywhere near my age, and you think back to like learning about the enlightenment, it was like this incredible time when man came out of darkness and science, you know, we had all of these advancements and we began to understand everything. And suddenly we understand medicine and we understand the human body. And we're not just talking about like the humors that are circulating in the human body anymore. But in fact, that um, that thinking, that scientific thinking gave rise to a lot of hierarchical thinking that led to racism, that led to sexism, and that led to um, something that I'm really, uh, you know, grappling with right now, which is this idea of humanism, which is simply that humans are superior to everything else, including the environment. We should all be taking a little thought about humanism and transhumanism. I mean, why is it that humans are sort of feel that we are superior, in fact, to animals or to nature or to natural forces? Or um, why is it that we think our bodies are so sort of intact when in fact they are very permeable and very changeable? There's just a lot of, a lot of human um, sort of uh, superiority that came out of the enlightenment. And in fact, a lot of, again, a lot of, you know, sort of macho thinking about men uh, and society and laws and culture and also a lot of racism and a lot of really, um, you know, incorrect thinking about sexuality, about, um, you know, phrenology. Remember when we were, you know, measuring people's skulls and that was telling us how smart they were? So there were a lot of sort of missteps about um, enlightenment thinking that, that, that led us down uh, some pretty destructive garden paths. So it's important, I think, um, in this look at Frankenstein to have this idea of transhumanism in, uh, in our minds. Okay, so um, again, the book was an immediate success. I'm moving on in my notes and I'm, I have here, uh, at eight, in 1818, uh, we have the edition that we're going to be looking at today. And she did a couple of successive uh, um, sort of iterations. So she herself wrote a couple of prefaces that were important. There was a big revision that came out in 1830. One of the important things there is that Frankenstein, the doctor, so this is one of the big things that people um, tend to do with Frankenstein. Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein is the doctor who creates the creature. So the creature is not named, which is very important. The creature is uh, called the creature uh, at least once by the narrator, but Victor Frankenstein calls this the, he calls it the monster. He calls it the, um, you know, this hideous, vile um, abomination. So as soon as Victor Frankenstein creates his monster, he is repelled by the monster. He refers to it as the monster. I think I just said that. Um, but 
at one point, Victor Frankenstein, in the early novel, he falls in love with his cousin and marries his cousin. And that was one of the changes that Mary Shelley made later, just to make very clear that there was no incest in the novel. Again, very important, you know, to make sure, well, that is probably an important thing to not marry your cousin. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's one of these sorts of, um, you know, ideas that would have been repellent to people that she quickly, or not quickly, but that she eventually changed in the novel. So, and then again, immediate success, it's never been out of print, um, lots of adaptations, lots of film adaptations, play adaptations, and, and it's really fascinating. There's an enormous amount of criticism and scholarship written on these adaptations because things like, um, you know, the portrayal of science or the portrayal of sex. Um, Freud just had an absolute heyday with a lot of this thinking. So at different points in time over the last 200 years, Frankenstein has been uh, something of a lightning rod, I mean, you know, as it were, uh, for a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different sort of creative uh, expressions of different, um, you know, sort of iterations of how we are thinking about human beings and what makes a creature human and how you can animate something and how creatures can be, um, you know, get out of our hands and how they can um, repel us as soon as we have created them, all sorts of different things have been taken up in these various adaptations. Okay, so I wanna move on now to talk about this idea of the text, the text itself. So it is a hybrid text in lots of ways, and that's an important aspect because the creature himself is also a hybrid. So we have this hybrid creature in the sense that Victor Frankenstein becomes obsessed with this idea of animating um, a, a creature, whether or not he could bring a corpse back to life, essentially. So and, and during the Enlightenment, there was a lot of talk about um, electricity and there, very famously, there was um, a lot of lightning storms that were happening that one summer in Geneva. And so Mary Shelley kind of endows Victor Frankenstein, who is um, someone who is, he's Swiss, and he is seeing, um, when he is young-ish, he sees a lightning bolt that, that kills a tree and sort of splits this tree, and it's this huge event in his life, and he becomes aware of the sort of um, animating and, and the force of electricity. So he gets in his mind that he wants to uh, create a creature and that he will animate that creature with electricity. So he goes around to like the charnel houses, I think that's the name of them, where you have like all the offal, the O-F-F-A-L, all the different animal parts. He goes to um, graveyards, he digs up corpses, he does all of this different stuff. And very quickly, this is a very short part of the novel and it's actually in retrospect, he pieces all of these things together. So he makes this hybrid creature out of all of these different pieces of different corpses and different bodies and whatnot. And he, he creates this eight foot tall, seven or eight foot tall uh, creature who very quickly becomes monstrous to him. But this person who he creates, this being, is in fact hybrid. Hybrid in the sense that he is pieced together and he is animated by science, by medical, um, you know, medical means, and in fact using electricity which was important for Mary Shelley and also for Victor Frankenstein. So the hybrid nature of the creature is reflected in the hybrid nature of the text. In fact, there are lots of different hybrid aspects to the text. The very most obvious one is that Mary Shelley that summer wrote um, a, you know, the story itself, which is essentially the story of Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein. It's, it begins with him bringing this creature to life and then all sorts of different things ensue. 
What happened after that summer is Mary Shelley, um, likely, you know, with the input of Byron and of Percy and of the doctor who was there and her cousin Claire, um, she added this epistolary frame. So what is an epistolary frame? A framing device is simply something, um, if you're watching on the YouTube, you can see that I'm making like columns on the sides of my of my head, actually of my face here. Um, so a framing device is simply something that sort of sits at the beginning and the end of a story. It's exactly what it sounds like. And epistolary simply means letters back and forth. So Mary Shelley creates this epistolary framework that essentially sits around the story of Frankenstein having animated his monster. So what is this epistolary uh, framework? It is letters back and forth between this uh, explorer named Walton, who is on a ship and he is sort of landlocked, not landlocked, he's iceberg locked up. Um, he has left with a crew, uh, again, this is a, a, an explorer named Walton, and he is writing letters to his uh, sister Margaret. And he tells in these letters, which are the very beginning of the novel of Frankenstein, he starts telling these letters about how their ship is stranded in the ice, they're trying to find the Northwest Passage, they've left uh, England and have, um, you know, sailed due north and they're stuck in the ice. And Walton is obsessed with the idea of the Northwest Passage, and he will not, his entire crew is mutinying, no one thinks this is a good idea, and Walton is absolutely determined to continue on and to find the North, Northwest Passage, you know, to the quote-unquote new world. Um, so, as that is happening, first they see this monster go by on this sled, he tells about this in the epistolary, and then um, this Victor Frankenstein person arrives. So. Victor Frankenstein gets onto the ship and he begins to tell his tale. So the telling of the tale is essentially, you know, sort of the meat of the novel. It is the story that Victor Frankenstein tells to this gentleman, Walton, who then, um, you know, makes a decision at the end of the novel in his letters that he writes to his sister um, about, he makes a decision based on his experience in talking to Victor Frankenstein, who eventually departs, meaning, not, not dies, but he, he eventually leaves the ship in pursuit of his creature, of his monster. So you have um, these two discrete stories. You have Victor Frankenstein's story that he is recounting, and then you also have this frame about this person named Walton. So a couple of important things. I, myself, am never a big fan of the frame. In, in this case, it feels very tacked on. It, it, it was, in fact, entirely sort of tacked on at the end here, just sort of fitted around this story. I was, it's, I just was like kind of relieved when I got to page 80 and we switched from this epistolary framework to the actual story itself. But I have, um, you know, done a lot of thinking this time and I've done quite a bit of reading and research and I've come around on the idea of the framework. So here's why. One is that um, in this story, Walton is writing to his sister, Margaret um, Saville Walton, or no, Margaret Walton Saville. So her initials become MWS, which is exactly the same as Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. So that seems like kind of a minor thing, but I sort of love it. It's this idea of um, Margaret and Mary as being the same person, and both of them as sort of receiving this story as kind of a, um, like a, like a fait accompli, like a, it, it's like a finished product that is arriving to them. So there's this kind of sense, um, you know, certainly in the 19th century about um, inspiration. And I don't want to say divine inspiration, because I'm not really sure um, what Mary Shelley's religious thoughts are all about. I should probably know that. I don't really know that. 
But this idea of, of receiving a story kind of whole and then um, producing it, I mean, in many ways, um, Mary Shelley, there is sort of this whole fable about how all of a sudden at night she was in Geneva in this crazy weather, in this miserable, um, you know, rainy, very, very cold winter. I mean, summer that felt like winter. She received the entire story and just had to sit down and write it. So it's this sense that Walton, um, as he is writing the letters to his sister and sends her the entire package, you get this nice sense um, of Mary Shelley as also having received this story. It also legitimizes the story. So many people forget, for example, in The Scarlet Letter, that the entire manuscript of The Scarlet Letter is found up in the attic of this, um, it's like a town hall kind of a thing. I forget what it's called, a meeting house maybe. Um, and there is a real, when you have a framing device and you have an authority figure in that framing device who comes upon a manuscript or who receives a story from a traveler, there is a sense of authority, you know, if you sort of bought into the person of Walton, who is this, you know, esteemed captain of the ship, then there is this sense of, of um, being willing to listen to the story of Victor Frankenstein, or in the case of the Scarlet Letter, you know, of Reverend Dimsdale. You, you have a sense of these stories as being legitimized by the person who is in the frame, who is offering up this story. So I also like the fact that the story is told um, over this sort of nine month period. So there's a lot that has been made of sort of gestation and this idea of, of this story and the creature as having been sort of produced in this nine month period that is reflected in the frame and in these letters that Walton is writing to his sister. So I do love that. Um, I also, in fact, love the idea that, that the framework, that this kind of hybrid model in the novel is also echoing the hybrid nature of the creature himself. It also, very importantly, I discussed a bit ago about this idea of these doubles, that in Gothic literature, there is a lot of doubling of people. And in many ways, people have, critics and scholars, have read Victor Frankenstein as a double of Walton. So these are men who are esteemed in their fields. They're men who are well-educated and capable and daring and competent. And Victor Frankenstein is able to animate this creature. And Walton is able to captain this ship, you know, very close to whatever, the North Pole or wherever they're going. Um, but, but what happens is uh, Victor makes a certain decision and Walton makes a different decision. And ultimately that allows, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but that allows Mary Shelley to reinforce this kind of idea, this cautionary tale that she has um, that she has written with Victor Frankenstein, and then she is able to sort of reiterate it with Walton and the decision that he makes. So it's a way that she is able to underscore what I think is one of the most important elements of the novel, which is in fact uh, this cautionary tale. Okay, so we're gonna um, move on to the actual text itself. And very lastly, there is another way in which the text is a hybrid. So it is, um, you know, during the, the 18th century, 1700s, a lot of Enlightenment um, writing was very essayistic. It was very science-based. Um, and you did have fiction that was being written, but it was, um, the novel hadn't quite found its footing. And when you have these Gothic tales, they can be fairly unconventional and in fact, very sort of hybrid in lots of ways. So within this novel that Mary Shelley has written, we have these epistolary frames on either side of this, the bulk of the story. 
But the story itself is, um, you know, it's the story of Victor Frankenstein, but it's also this incredible inclusion of all of these texts that I alluded to before. So Percy Shelley, um, there are a couple of his actual poems that are in there. So there's kind of this interesting meta quality, and there are poems that people would definitely have recognized as Percy Shelley's at that time. Um, but there also is, um, there's mention, for example, of Paradise Lost by Milton, which I mentioned before. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of intertexts is kind of the fancy word for it, but there's a lot of reference to a lot of different texts. So the, the whole piece becomes hybrid in the sense that she is evoking the power and, and, and sort of the weight and the heft and the resonance of all of these different texts that she names as she is moving along. So again, you have another idea of, of sort of piecing things together. I don't think you can really see, unfortunately, you cannot see this very well, but my sweater is this amazing sweater that my husband Bill gave me um, that, that's like strips of um, really beautiful black, um, it's not fabric, it's like a knit sweater kind of thing, but it's like pieced together and sewn together in these kind of um, interesting strips and stripes. It's almost like a mummy, but totally not like a mummy, um, but it is very much pieced together in the same way that the creature is, but also in the same way that the novel is, not only with the frame on the either side, but also with all of these different, uh, you know, whether it's a fragment of poetry, whether it's a reference to a very important tale uh, like Paradise Lost, um, you have this kind of meld of all of these literary things all together. Lastly, before um, we dive into the actual text itself, I want to talk briefly about the way that uh, this book is another type of hybrid because the edition that I came across, I'm, I'm in New York City right now and I went to the most incredible bookstore nearby, um, McNally Jackson, and I came across this incredible gem. Um, it's, it's a cover that's like a little creepy and a little yucky for me to look at. In fact, um, I'm not a fan of anatomy. When I realized how long the esophagus was, I just was like, wait, what? And when I learned how far the kidneys were from the bladder, oh my God, I have quite a few friends who are doctors and I just like, I just would be like, what? Like how, that's so crazy. So um, having to take a long look at this, I mean, look at the heart and ooh, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot happening here. So it's been difficult in some ways for me to live with this copy, but I was totally taken by it because this here is a hybrid copy. What I have here um, is the original Frankenstein and I'm, I'm not loving, I'm not loving the way that this is kind of um, sold here. It says Mary Shelley with Percy Shelley like in parentheses, the original Frankenstein, two new versions, Mary Shelley's earliest draft and Percy Shelley's revised text. So what we have here first is this big, um, you know, there's like a, you can see the book, it's kind of, I mean, it's hybrid even here. It's kind of, you know, you got the normal cream colored pages and then you have these slightly gray pages. The gray pages that come second are the original manuscript that Mary Shelley wrote and the first thing that you read, which is kind of the primary text, is the, the um, draft that Percy Shelley edited with Mary Shelley. So you have this hybrid book in my hands that is an early draft together with a later draft. So that's one element or sort of one level of hybridization. But you also have um, a, a really strong sense given this volume itself, which is yet another um, you know, edition of Frankenstein, um, you have this idea that Percy Shelley, that his involvement with the text made it somewhat of a hybrid text because he served as editor and he made changes to the text that, um, you know, that from the look of this cover, you would think would be pretty material. 
Like it's it's a little like, I mean, lots of times when you have a ghost writer, it'll be like Andre Agassi with whatever that guy is who wrote The Tender Bar. That's a great biography, by the way. Um, but here we have Mary Shelley with Percy Shelley. It's almost like Percy Shelley was the ghostwriter, which I really resent. I resent that. In fact, um, the guy who writes the preface to the edition, thank goodness, clarifies, I mean, it is a little hagiographic, hey meaning um, it's like, it's definitely promoting Percy more than I would like to have seen. But um, this guy, whatever his name is, um, I don't even, I mean, happily, the name of the guy is not on here, only Percy Shelley. Um, but this this person who published this edition, I mean, it's great, it's interesting. I really enjoyed looking back and forth between the two, but he does um, really make it sound like Percy was a huge you know, influence, when in fact, Percy only wrote 7,000 words of, a, sorry, he wrote four or 5,000 words of a 72,000 word manuscript. So um, I had to have my husband do that math for me. It's about 7% roughly. So it's it's not that much. And after we take a look at the text, I am going to make the argument that Percy did not do Frankenstein any favors. Essentially, my argument boils down to the fact that Mary Shelley had this really beautiful, very strong, very clear prose style. And Percy felt like he needed to really get in there and sort of like, I don't know. Oh my God, do you know what he needs to do? He's mansplaining. There's a lot of mansplaining that's happening here. There's a lot of Percy just being like, oh, actually, uh, I think I need to like clarify here what you mean by societal ills. and or, It's not even that good. I, we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. I'm going to read some of these, um, you know, examples of what Mary said and then what ended up being um, Percy's, you know, additions. I have to think if this is my fantasy. My fantasy is that if you're Mary Shelley and your husband is like really, really a very big deal and he's five years older and you were 18 years old and then you have Byron in the wings who's like totally egomaniacal crazy guy and he is the the um, father of your cousin's baby and your cousin's 17 that and he's like whatever, a 27 year old man, which was like huge authority figure back then. Um, you know, you're, you're maybe gonna like be like, oh, okay, Percy oh, tell me what I need to do to get this book published. You know, you'd be like, okay, uh, you know, oh, that sounds good. You know, just like throwing him a little bit of a bone because otherwise his ego would probably be crushed. And frankly, Percy Shelley's ego should be crushed because Mary Shelley, um, way better prose writer. And who reads, uh, you know, Percy Shelley's poetry anymore? I mean, I never have read any of it. Ozymandias is like his huge thing. Has anyone read that recently? Not the way they're reading Frankenstein. So that is a long-winded way of saying that I think Percy, we're gonna look at this at the end, Percy, um, you know, just like not that big a deal, but it is another way in which uh, this book is a hybrid text. Speaking of hybrid, those of you who are watching on YouTube can uh, tell that suddenly there's electricity. Suddenly I'm lit by uh, the, the lifeblood of uh, Frankenstein's monster, his creature. Um, I am on the East Coast. I took an hour-long break, and um, it's like 3.30 in the afternoon, but it's dark here, so I've turned on all the electrical lights here. Um, so we've got a hybrid lecture. Suddenly it used to be daytime. Now it's nighttime. So we're going to finally dive into the text with all of this different sort of um, information about it. And we're just going to touch on a couple of things about the prose. We're going to begin with chapter seven of volume one. We're diving into that point because it is the beginning of the story that is kind of the, the middle chunk, the part that is framed by the framing device. This is the part that Mary Shelley wrote during that summer in Geneva when she was with um, Byron and Percy and her cousin Claire and a doctor named Polidori, um, but I don't really know much about him. 
boy, you, he really got written into history um, in, in a big way when he was just kind of a casual bystander. Okay, so here we are on page 80 of my text. Oh, and you guys are gonna, um, you're gonna laugh because this is kind of, uh, when you think of the Gothic tale, when you think of like the, the horror novel or the kind of archetypal, um, even the movie set that you might see in that very first scene, uh, I think you maybe are uh, conjuring up the phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. You know, that's kind of the cliche. And in fact, it's cliche for a reason, because here is what we have with this kind of blueprint that really was the very first of, um, of the Gothic novels. Not the first of the Gothic novels. That's not true. That was in 1762, that other guy. But this is like, you know, the big daddy. This is like the big, the big model that we still have and still read. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld my man completed. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the window panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs." So this is the beginning. And I, I mentioned before that um, Victor Frankenstein goes on to say that as a young boy, he saw this, this uh, you know, lightning come and, and, and sort of blow up this tree. And he realized the force behind electricity, which of course was um, the, the idea of galvanizing things was a, was a big deal during the enlightenment. So this idea of electrical current and how you might harness them. Um, I don't know when Benjamin Franklin was out there with his key and the kite. I don't know, was that, I mean, that was probably 1700s. I don't, God, that's so embarrassing. Um, those of you watching on the YouTube, I will now flash up the year. I don't know what it is though, and I cannot promise that I will remember that I'm forgetting this right now. So um, you might have to look that up yourself. But uh, so we have this galvanizing, this, this kind of electrical current that runs through the creature and brings him to life. It is um, no coincidence that Mary Shelley is beginning this, this story with this very most exciting moment. It's sort of the birth of the creature is really also um, coincides with the birth of the tale. It is really the bringing to life of this creature that is the beginning of the tale. What's interesting to me is that all of the kind of horror and the scariness that comes after this, um, you know, it's, it's as if it's not horrible enough to be digging up the corpses and whatnot. The, the really scary thing is um, the, the sort of coming to life of this creature. And very soon after this, uh, Victor Frankenstein is horrified. He's repelled by the creature. He um, flees. It's, I mean, okay, so we're going to talk about implausibility for a minute because you will note that I just said that he flees. So one of the things that happens in Frankenstein right from the start is it really requires some suspension of disbelief. So this is one of those, um, you know, critics of, or critic, scholars, really scholars have said that, um, you know, it, it really does require you to suspend disbelief. And a lot of stories do. I mean, certainly all of magic realism functions on our ability to sort of embrace disbelief. But many fables also and lots of mythology have you, um, you need to sort of, uh, you know, take at face value what is happening in the story. And you need to kind of modify, not modify it, but you need to sort of understand it in its system and it's sort of in its own terms. And you need to understand what the, uh, you know, focus on what the artist 
writer in this case, is trying to tell us with these um, with these actions and these repercussions that in fact uh, seem a bit outlandish. And there are a lot of them in this book. So one is simply the very, very beginning thing, which is this idea that in, you know, 1818 or 1816, uh, that you would have a situation where a medical doctor could dig up a bunch of corpses and go to some sort of dissection labs and gather together a bunch of, uh, you know, human elements, run an electrical current through them and bring to life this eight foot monster. So um, once you have done that, once you have sort of accepted that this is something that could happen, um, then you have effectively suspended disbelief. And it's very important that you do that. If you're a skeptic from the beginning, you're just not going to, you know, the book is not going to work for you. So um, at that point, a lot of different things um, are going to happen that also require our suspension of disbelief. One of them is that the day after uh, this all happens, and it's happening at this sort of medical school where Victor Frankenstein has gone for his education, um, the very next morning when he is appalled by his creature and essentially flees the laboratory and abandons his creature, which again is another one of these things, you're a bit like, wait, why? Why is Frankenstein, you know, he's just completed this lifelong dream and this passion of his to animate a corpse. And then he immediately flees and doesn't think about staying or, um, you know, wanting to sort of examine what he has done. He also finds that very morning that his best friend from growing up has also arrived in the town, uh, who he's sort of following Victor Frankenstein's footsteps and wants to come and become a doctor. And um, so, but it is that very morning when Victor is like freaking out that his friend Henry Clerval arrives. So a couple of the other implausibilities are that uh, we have the, the, the creature, Frankenstein, he, um, when he does, you know, sort of leave the laboratory and he's out in the, the, you know, the real world, he's out sort of figuring out who he is as a being. And in fact, it's very important that when he leaves the lab, he is a, a, a tabula rasa. He is really very much a blank slate. And it is really society that sort of, um, he, he's, he's also good and he's nurturing and it's society that basically turns him uh, further into a monster. We know he is good because when he's wandering in the woods, he finds this little cabin, this little hovel. And here's another implausibility. He listens in um, to the, the family who has fallen on hard times, who is inside this little shack. And he teaches himself French very quickly just by listening to their uh, language. And then out in the woods, he just happens to come across a copy of Milton's Paradise Lost, which uh, presumably is in French. I don't know, some kind of French translation because he has learned French from these people. Um, it, it's funny, I haven't seen any scholarship and as far as I remember in the reading that I just did this week, um, he, you know, he learns French from them, but there is no mention of the fact that this is any kind of translation of Milton's Paradise Lost. Importantly, Milton's Paradise Lost is the story of Adam and the fall of Adam and paradise is, is Eden. And it's this idea of, of um, Adam and Eve as being expelled, you know, from, from Eden from this kind of idyllic garden because they eat from the, the tree of knowledge and they become aware of knowledge. And that knowledge is essentially that they are flawed and that they are naked and that they have been born with sin and that they need to be redeemed. So Milton's Paradise Lost is a very important text because 
our, um, our, our creature, our monster, in reading this, begins to have these thoughts that maybe he also is filled with sin, maybe he's bad, uh, maybe he's being expelled from the Garden of Eden, um, because in fact, the family who he is hanging out with, it is a very sort of Edenic setting couple of other things about his good nature. Um, he's very nurturing in the beginning of the story. He starts to take care of this group of people. Um, it's this family who, again, has fallen on hard times and he begins uh, bringing them wood that is very easy for him to gather because he's eight feet tall. Um, and he begins bringing them food. He notably does not eat meat. He says at some point that he doesn't kill creatures. He doesn't eat meat. He's just like surviving on berries and you know, foraging, and he also is foraging on behalf of the family. At one point, there is a near drowning and he saves the child. So there is a lot of um, goodness in him that, that we see very patently toward the beginning. And then as he is sort of wronged by society and as different things sort of start, um, uh, you know, uh, piling up against him, one of them simply being that when people see him, they are so repelled because he is not beautiful, uh, despite the fact that his elements are beautiful. He's when he is all put together, um, you know, he's so kind of quote unquote grotesque and monstrous looking. These are words that Mary Shelley puts in Victor Frankenstein's mouth that in fact his creator flees from him. So there is this um, resonance with Adam that, you know, he's banished, the, the monster is banished by his creator um, because in fact he is grotesque and he is flawed and he is not um, the sort of ideal form that the creator was hoping to create. So as the monster is gaining more and more of this, he is gaining more and more anger and more and more, more sort of impulse issues and all sorts of crazy, crazy things begin uh, to ensue. But back to the point about suspension of disbelief, you have to suspend disbelief uh, that, that Victor Frankenstein is going to be able to animate this corpse. And then you have to um, just very quickly go through a whole set of totally implausible things that are happening. Um, and some of them are real doozies, but you just you just kind of just let it go. You just let it go and you appreciate what Mary Shelley has done. Again, if you decided to sort of take uh, you know issue with some of these details and some of these coincidences of time and place, um, you really would not have a great experience of, of the work. Okay, so I just wanna read uh, the next paragraph, it's not very long, just to give you a sense of the incredible prose with which Mary Shelley is writing. So um, this is a classic, obviously it's a classic novel, it's 200 years old. I mean, it's like a really old classic, you know, 1818 is, is pretty far back there. It's not exactly Jane Austen. Um, Wait, God, I'm forgetting. I think Jane Austen's maybe 1813, so it's actually very close to that. Um, meaning Emma is maybe 1814, 1817, something like that. But they're they're somewhat contemporaneous. But you know, this is before Dickens. This is certainly before um, most of the writing uh, that we think of in American literature. People like Henry James or. Uh, John Steinbeck or any of those um, are, are significantly later. So this is a very, very early example of a novel. And the prose is being written by this woman who is 18 years old, even younger potentially, because I think she published it when she was, oh no, I think the summer she was 18 is when she was in Geneva. So, but this is a very young person who has not had formal education, who has read widely in her father's library, but listen to this prose. It's also prose, it, it does feel somewhat antiquated as it should, but in terms of like readability, it is awesome. I mean, it's clear and it's limpid and it's just, it's very, um, 
engaging. It's a little bit, uh, you know, melodramatic at times, but that again is a part of, of this kind of genre. Okay, so I'm gonna read the next paragraph. How can I describe my emotion at this catastrophe or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion and I had selected his features as beautiful, beautiful great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing and his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. So you have, um, you know, this description of this kind of horrific thing that he has brought to life, which is really, um, it's interesting and it's important because his revulsion uh, has a lot to do with kind of the cautionary elements of her tale. But what I wanted you to focus on there was just how clear and how sort of um, contemporary in lots of ways this prose is. I mean, it is not certainly like reading Paradise Lost by Milton. It's not, it doesn't feel as kind of old as you might expect it to feel. And this is a book that has lots of plot. I mean, things really get going. I know it's um, often part of the curriculum in high school in the United States. And I think I maybe thought that wasn't a great idea, but I think I just said that because when I was in high school, I was not into reading classics. As some of you recall, I was really into reading Daniel Steele, which is literally the opposite of a classic. But um, I really do think that this would be an interesting text to teach kids because I do think there's a lot of really sort of juicy plot that is happening. I'm not going to share it with you because it's up to you whether or not you want to dive in. I'm just giving you, giving you sort of what we can take away from this incredible novel. Another thing I want to do uh, before we return to these questions of what we want to take away from the text is dig in a little bit to uh, the, the modifications that Percy made because I just want to make very clear in case, um, you know, this new volume really just like brings up some sort of like revisioning of Mary Shelley and we're going to maybe end up giving Percy too much credit. I would like to make the argument here uh, that Percy, in fact, did, did Frankenstein no favors, did the book no favors. Okay, so we're going to look at a couple of examples. We will read um, Mary Shelley's. Uh, version first, the, the sort of original manuscript, and then we will read what Percy has added. This is just a quick fragment, but where Mary Shelley says, I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was or what I was doing. My heart palpitated with fear, and I hurried on with irregular steps. Percy turns it into, I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was or what I was doing. My heart palpitated in the sickness of fear, and I hurried on with irregular steps, not daring to look about me. Literally, what he added was, in the sickness of fear. She says, my heart palpitated in fear. He says, my heart palpitated in the sickness of fear. Not a great addition, as far as I am concerned. Just a little bit further on, really actually almost in that same page, when his friend Henry, Cl Henry Clerval runs into him on the very morning that he happens to have animated uh, his corpse and that he happens to be having this enormous crisis, um, he, Henry Clerval says the following, "'My dear Frankenstein,' exclaimed he, "'how glad I am to see you, "'how fortunate you should be here "'at the moment of my alighting.'" What Percy changes it to is, 
My dear Frankenstein, exclaimed he, how glad I am to see you. How fortunate that you should be here on the very moment of my alighting. So all he did is add that. So he says, how, instead of how fortunate you should be here, Percy says, how fortunate that you should be here. Totally not necessary. And she says, at the moment of my alighting. And Percy adds, at the very moment of my alighting. Um, if you ask me, again, I'm feeling a little mansplaining. I'm feeling like Percy's just like, oh my God, this is so good. He's like, oh, my young bride who's only 18 has written this amazing book. I got to like add something to it. I got to just add some, you know, I don't know, a very here and there. I mean, just not necessary. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage. Um, this is where Percy really like leans in. I mean, this is a good chunk of, I don't know, 100, 150 words of the 4,000 that he contributed which we are going to look at. I think it's an interesting passage also though, because I think Mary Shelley, um, you know, I'm, I haven't thought or read a lot about how autobiographical the, the Frankenstein is, but I, I do know that Mary uh, Shelley, Mary Godwin at the time, had a very difficult time. In fact, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, um, she took her mother's name as her, uh, her mother's last name as her middle name because her mother died so soon after she was born. So essentially she had her mother's name, Mary Wollstonecraft, with Godwin tacked on the end. She did not get along all that well with her stepmother. So um, we have a part in the book where uh, they are discussing the fact that uh, when, when uh, Victor was young, this, this young woman, Justine, came and lived with their family. So here we have um, Shelley, Mary Shelley's version of uh, this portion of the story uh, of this Justine, this young girl, uh, a, a young foundling or a cousin, depending on which uh, edition of the book you're reading. So this little girl, Justine, comes to live with them. Her mother was a widow with four children, of whom Justine was the third. This girl had always been a favorite of her father, but by an odd perversity, her mother could not endure her. To me, that sounds a little bit like uh, Mary Shelley was maybe writing uh, directly to her stepmother there, saying her uh, father always loved her, but her uh, quote-unquote mother did not, in fact, uh, share those warm feelings. My aunt observed this, and when Justine was 12 years old, prevailed on her mother to allow her to live at our house, which is kind of wacky. Like, you know, here you have um, the aunt of Victor Frankenstein who's like, hey, I, I see you don't really like your third child very much. Maybe she can come and live with us. But apparently everyone is very, very happy. Um, so uh, Justine comes and lives with them. And um, so it says right here, uh, my aunt observed this. And when Justine was 12 years old, prevailed on her mother to allow her to live at our house, where she was taught all the duties of servant and was very kindly treated. I dare say that you remember all about it, for Justine was a great favorite of yours, and I remember you once said that if you were in an ill humor, one glance from Justine could dissipate it. So um, there's also a little bit of exposition here because uh, this is Victor talking to his best friend, Henry Clairval. Doesn't really need to be saying all of this about Justine and saying, of course, you remember how Justine and how wonderful she was, uh, but this is exposition that our uh, Victor is giving us about Justine when they were growing up. So just to repeat the important part before I read what Percy has chunked on in here, um, what Mary Shelley has written, my aunt observed this and when Justine was 12 years old prevailed on her mother to allow her to live at our house where she was taught all the duties of servant and was very kindly treated. I dare say blah blah blah. 
all the rest of that. So here's what Percy adds. My aunt observed this and when Justine was 12 years old, prevailed on her mother to allow her to live at our house. The Republican institutions of our country have produced simpler and happier manners than those which prevail in the great monarchies that surround it. Hence, there is less distinction between the classes into which human beings have been divided and the lower orders, being neither so poor nor so despised, are more refined and moral. A servant at Geneva does not mean the same thing as a servant in France or England. Justine was thus received into our family to learn the duties of a servant, which in our fortunate country does not include a sacrifice of the dignity of a human being. I dare say that you now remember all about it, for Justine was a great favorite of yours, blah, blah, blah. So Percy has chunked in this whole thing about how, you know, the, the story is set in Switzerland. They're in, they're in Geneva when all of this is going down. And so it's very important for Percy, apparently, to make this very clear that when you are in Switzerland, there is more respect for the servants because Justine is essentially being brought in as a servant. I can tell you that, um, you know, as an American reader, you're like, okay, she brings in Justine to act as a servant in their household. There, there must have been some reason for that. Either, you know, it was clear that Justine was someone um, who was maybe a servant in someone else's household. Who knows? Um, but this whole long thing, and again, um, the, the prose that Percy adds, I think it does no favors in the sense here and elsewhere that it's very flowery and it's very sort of convoluted and, dare I say it, very sort of um, mansplainy, things like the Republican institutions of our country have produced simpler and happier manners than those which prevail in the great monarchies that surround it. So there he's talking about Switzerland versus you know France and Germany and these other places that he seems to think are more socially stratified, and that may be very true, but the prose is just so not great. The Republican institutions that our country have produced simpler and happier. I mean, it's just, it is not at all in, it's not at all in keeping with Mary Shelley's. And it also, in fact, really helps us see the simplicity and kind of the richness and the clarity of the prose with which Mary Shelley is writing this masterpiece. So I want to wrap up with this idea uh, of, of uh, Frankenstein as really being very much a cautionary tale. And we know, even in 1818, when Mary Shelley wrote it, that, that she really did mean it in some ways to be a cautionary tale. Lots of times, um, you know, again, this is a very provocative text, so lots of times you'll have this idealization of sort of the bucolic and this idyllic natural setting and sort of, uh, you know, you can feel the utopian uh, sort of underpinnings of her parents' influences in that she has a lot of... Um, Rousseauian kind of uh, faith that man is good, that man is born good, that you know it is really society and things like poverty and things like uh, classist things that are that like classist stratification, that sort of thing uh, that is really causing problems when when problems arise. So, but we know that it is a cautionary tale in large part because of the subtitle. So the book is called Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. I just said that and then I was like, wait, is that even correct? Um, I'm looking right now. I'm correct. It is called Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. So you will recall from your sixth grade uh, mythology courses that Prometheus um, was one of the Titans. He's a big god. I think he was a Titan, but anyways, important Greek god. And he basically helped out mankind 
humankind by giving uh, them fire. So this was a very big deal and he was punished by the gods in, uh, he was like strapped to a rock and every day this terrible falcon or something, vulture, some terrible bird comes and eats out his liver and then it regrows and uh, you know, like overnight or something. And then the next day, the same thing happens again. And it's horribly painful and it's awful and it happens for eternity. So uh, clearly misstep on the part of Prometheus. And importantly, what Prometheus has done is he has given this, you know, sort of uh, life force, this, this fire. He has given fire to human beings and he is punished for it in, in part because of the idea that humans are going to, you know, this is the beginning of, of scientific progress in many ways. And in fact, humans are going to uh, do some really bad things with all of this progress uh, that fire in this case is sort of emblemizing. So when Mary Shelley says Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, you have to remember that Frankenstein, she's talking about the doctor. She's talking about Victor Frankenstein, not the actual monster. So the Prometheus here is the doctor, is Frankenstein. So it's this idea that he is, <clears throat> excuse me, giving this kind of, um, this power, given this knowledge, given this, this procedure that is allowing us to do this unthinkable thing, allowing us to literally, you know, bring back this creature from the dead, um, this is, it's a, it's a sense that, uh, that, that that's a very dangerous thing that he has done. And again, right from the beginning, he is appalled at what he's done. And in fact, he has unleashed a, a very dangerous and a very sort of um, toxic uh, uh, force of nature that certainly uh, does some things that are difficult for Victor Frankenstein himself. And, and, and really, uh, is, it is something that this modern Prometheus, Victor Frankenstein, comes to regret very quickly and very much. Um, it is important to recognize though, that in the beginning, you know, there are a lot of questions about whether or not the, the monster, whether or not the creature is in fact monstrous. And a lot has been made of the fact that in fact, he's good in the beginning. And it is the way that he is rejected by society and the way that society shuns him and isolates him uh, and, and finds him grotesque. All of those are the things that, that make him uh, become sort of evil. So um, one of the reasons why I think this book has its kind of evergreen appeal is this idea of, of the cautionary tale. So um, when I was making a list of the things that sort of mankind has created that have become problems, I thought of the, the Winchester rifle and the Winchester mystery house, uh, which is in, in Northern California. And I, I think, I don't really have this uh, totally down, but the Winchester Mystery House is crazy. It's like a house that's like all these kind of, you know, dead end passages and staircases leading nowhere. And the reason it is like that is um, because of the kind of crazy superstition on the part of a young Ms. Uh, I don't know if she's a married, but I'm not sure if she's a Mrs. or a Miss. I'm gonna say she's Ms. Winchester. Um, she, it, it, her father or someone in her family someone in her family had uh, created the Winchester rifle. And there was so much kind of, uh, uh, you know, guilt about having created a firearm that would go on to cause so much destruction that um, I think she went a little bananas and it was this idea that if she ever stopped building her house, that she would die. I'm actually right now realizing that in fact, the building of the house and the, uh, you know, release of the rifle out into the world don't seem to be totally connected in my story. 
or in my mind. But I do know that there was a lot of guilt on the part of the Winchester family because of all of the, um, the violence that they wrought. Then, of course, um, you know, I think the guy who, who invented mustard gas, like, famously killed himself very soon thereafter, I think. Now I'm just riffing. I mean, do not take my word for any of this. Um, but we do know, because of Oppenheimer, uh, that we had a lot of, you know, the atomic bomb, things like that. It, you know, there is this sense that once we have discovered certain things, that you can't put those genies back in the bottle. And, of course, I am moving toward climate change and I'm moving toward AI. I mean, I think this is a time when we really feel, feel ourselves at a, a sort of a, a precipice because we don't know what is going to happen uh, with this artificial intelligence that, that we have essentially unleashed. I mean, people right now are trying to stuff that genie back in the bottle, at least to a certain degree, and um, seems difficult. So I think there's no time uh, like the present to really listen to some of the wisdom of young Mary Shelley from 200 years ago and, and, and really um, recognize that, that uh, the cautionary tale was very important then and it is very important now. So um, that, that's sort of one sense of reading this as a cautionary tale. The last thing I do want to mention is that a lot has been made of this book uh, in terms of sexuality, in terms of men being threatened by sexuality. Um, one of the things that, that the monster, the creature wants is a, uh, a female counterpart. So there's a lot of gender stuff that people have written about and a lot of stuff, a lot of Freudian stuff. So it is, a, um, it is a book that has lent itself to lots and lots of scholarship. But one of the ways that I'm most interested in it um, is, is the idea of, of the way that it's being read in the queer community. So in queer studies, which are sort of gender studies, uh, it has really been looked at as an example of, of the experience of being a transsexual person. So in some ways, when you think about someone who is a trans person and has the sense that they're in the wrong body and they want to have gender confirmation surgery, um, what they're doing is not, it's not totally different than what is happening with this idea of, of putting together the being. So Dr. Frankenstein is, is putting together these different parts of a human uh, body and making a, a being. And in this case, it is a man. He says right away, this is his man. And yet uh, there is, you know, he has a lot of sort of female virtues in the beginning. He's very nurturing, very gentle, vegetarian, doesn't want to hurt anyone. So a lot of sort of classic, you know, um, things that we think of as nurturing and, and female and maternal are, are felt and are exhibited by this creature. So there's a lot of questions and a lot of really interesting things that can happen with gender when we look at the book. But this idea of, um, of sort of the fate of this creature and the revulsion with which this creature is met by a lot of people and certainly by, you know, the medical establishment and, and Dr., uh, you know, Dr. Frankenstein and also certainly, you know, as a creator, like you have to read Dr. Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, as a sort of uh, god. His God, the creator of this of this creature, is totally appalled. So I think there are a lot of like crazy right wing people out there who might um, really, you know, get into that whole notion that like God made you a certain way and you have to be that way even if you don't feel like you belong that way. So um, it, it's it, it's been taken up. Um, there's one piece in particular that uh, I will have the information for um, 
if you're watching the YouTube channel, and you can also Google it. Um, but, but there was a piece about trans rage, rage on the part of a trans person who feels that the way that the, the creature in Frankenstein is, is sort of isolated and is vilified and is hated and is um, you know shunned and is assumed to be awful and violent and different and ugly, all of that is, is very close to this one person's uh, experience of being a trans person. So I think the, the novel has become a very important uh, text in some ways for the queer community and for the trans community in particular. There's an incredible book called Frankenstein, not Frankenstein, but Frankenstein. And importantly, the subtitle of that is A Love Story. So we have Mary Shelley having written Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. And then we have Jeanette Winterson, who has written Frankenstein, K-I-S-S, um, Frankenstein, A Love Story. And it is such an incredible, incredible novel. I really urge you to read it especially if you're interested in Frankenstein. there It's a hybrid book, which will not surprise you. Half of it is historical fiction, where Winterson is essentially um, imagining what that summer in Geneva was like, which is, it's so incredibly well done. I'm not generally a huge fan of historical fiction, but it is unbelievable. So we have this half of the book that is is sort of a re-envisioning of Mary Shelley and Percy and Byron and, and these people in this summer when when she is penning the novel Frankenstein, and it is melded and sort of spliced together with a French story that has to do uh, with a doctor, Victor Frank, and a, 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 a trans doctor, another trans person, named uh, Rye Shelley. So you have the, these very sort of, um, you know, different sort of iterations of the same sort of people and a rewriting that is happening in the near future which makes uh, the, sort of half the book becomes almost like speculative fiction or science fiction because it's, it is speculating about what science is going to do in some really interesting ways. Jeanette Winterson is very interested in artificial intelligence. She's written extensively about it. Um, most critics really loved Frankenstein. It got incredible reviews. A couple of them felt it was a bit ponderous because she was really trying to mush a lot of um, sort of big provocative thoughts in there. But I do think if you read Frankenstein and you really get a sense of the really big, important ideas that Mary Shelley is introducing in the original text, it makes a ton of sense that you have Jeanette Winterson uh, also, you know, really uh, involving some of the big provocative questions of our age. So um, Frankenstein came out in 1818 and uh, Frankenstein came out in 2019. So almost exactly 200 years later, they're an incredible duo um, to read together. So I would urge you to do that. But it is, um, it, it is an, it's a very interesting book about what it is to be a transsexual person. And um, it's, it's a very sort of uh, flattering and a very beautiful look at a relationship that, that is, uh, you know, the sort of burgeoning love that is really the opposite of all of the experience that Frankenstein's creature has in the original. So the last thing I want to do to very, um, you know, to tie us up here is to go back to these original, original questions. And um, 
and think a little bit, wrap up what I think we really need to be learning from Frankenstein. So again, respect for this other, um, you know, the, the creature looks different and is judged for looking different and for, and for being um, sort of superhuman in some ways that are very threatening, when in fact that person is very nurturing and very loving and is um, essentially very good. So this idea of someone who is sort of out of, of the normal bounds of, of what it is to be, you know, sort of like a totally prototypical human, um, I, I think we need to, to uh, really have respect for that kind of other, for the other, whatever that looks like. Um, and then we really do need to have compassion for people who are struggling. If anyone had, um, you know, just talked to this poor creature, uh, you know, you really, the, the, if there had been any kind of compassion, there was a lot of goodness in this creature that was waiting to come out and was not able to emerge because the person was struggling and was not supported and met no compassion and instead met a lot of, um, a lot of anger and a lot of fear and a lot of hatred and things did not go well for everyone. Um, we also, again, I think the idea of a healthy suspicion of, uh, of science and technological advancement, and I think an important kind of revisioning of the Enlightenment thinking is something that we should be thinking about with Frankenstein. And again, the idea of sort of, um, you know, what it is to be a man, what it is to be threatening, what it is to be a woman, um, what it is to be human. Why is, you know, why, why is human, why, are, why is sort of mankind, you know, better than all of these other creatures? I mean, again, the creature, the, the monster himself was a vegetarian, didn't want to cause harm to anyone. You know, there is sort of a transhuman element to this um, where, where there's a lot of respect for the natural world on the part of this creature who doesn't know that, you know, according to society, um, you know, that uh, mankind is superior to all other forms of life. And finally, uh, I mean, gosh, having just finished a reread of this novel and having really uh, appreciated the fact that it was written by an 18-year-old woman during one summer uh, when she, I don't know if she was pregnant at the time, but she certainly had already lost a child or two um, in, in tragic miscarriages. And she was in this, you know, she was exiled from her home. And she managed to write a book that has just been an absolute success in terms of printing that is in prose that is so mature and so clear and so beautiful. And it is a, a, a book that continues to be incredibly, incredibly relevant and it continues to be adapted and it continues to be um, studied and, and, and sort of um, meets every single, uh, you know, sort of human moment in a way that is really impressive and, and, and really just should be, should be highly respected. And again, I think that we can think about that a bit more broadly and understand that we should be listening to 18-year-old women. You know, there are a lot of really smart things um, that youngsters have to say. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there. I hope uh, that you have enjoyed this, uh, you know, sort of thinking about Frankenstein. Whether or not you read the whole thing doesn't really matter. Maybe you watch, um, watch Young Frankenstein. I mean, as I recall, that movie was rad. I think there was like a... Um, you know, you got Gene Wilder's big eyes, if I if I recall, um, and we've got um, you know Bernadette Peters with her crazy blonde hair. I might be totally misremembering. Maybe I am, um, but but you know, maybe you watch that. Maybe uh, you watch Boris Karlov, or maybe you watch those silent films, or maybe you read it, or maybe you read Frankenstein. 
regardless of what you do with this information, um, I think it's just really excellent to um, have spent some time really thinking about Mary Shelley and the importance of literature and, and the ways that um, a book like Frankenstein can both entertain and horrify and uh, really teach us a thing or two. So thank you so much for listening. Head right back to the Fox page. Um, scroll down during those podcasts uh, and you know get yourself get yourself something else to listen to. And uh, happy reading. Hi, Quinty. A really interesting take on this experience, uh, a, a, a really interesting take on this experience by uh, Susan Stryker.